Welcome to Murder Avenue. something out for you guys and give you guys a little bit of a heads up to what you know for what to expect as well as a new episode so these are just updates at the beginning you guys can go ahead and skip through about seven minutes or so and you'll be uh you know you'll actually be into the show but it's pretty interesting man i'm really looking forward to this show and growing this show and doing a lot of things with this because it seems even with the minimal amount of stuff that i've done the small amount of content and material you guys have responded you know i've gotten a decent amount of listens you know i think we're almost at 1500 downloads for you know just the i don't know two episodes three episodes something like that but that also includes all the other episodes that was this podcast originally you know familiar strangers is what this podcast used to be and i changed it and that's what infominds you know those episodes are just me goofing off everything else newer you know i did uh bob berdella and uh peewee gaskins those are two Infamines episodes about, you know, serial killers. And that's what we're going to stick to, man. From here forward, that's all you're going to expect. So if you're subscribed, man, my heart goes out to you. Thank you so much. It means the world. And uh, keep keep listening, man. Like I said, you're going to see a lot of amazing new changes, and it's just going to keep on getting better and better, you know, especially once we get the other guys involved. Get the other guys in here, you know, it's only going to get that, you know, how could it not? We're, we're, good, we're good at what we do. But regardless, we're here, man. And I'm excited, and I'm, uh, I got a whole whole new episode for you, ready to go, and I'm excited about it, so uh, let's get into this, man. Uh, his name, who actually who we're going to be looking into today, let's put it this way, who we're going to be looking into today is a man that I only know, <clears throat> excuse me, I only know so much about him, I don't know that much, and it's kind of the reason that I do the podcasting that I do. It's for me, too. You know, I want to know this information. I want to research this information. I want to have it in my head. So I do it for myself as well as you guys. So it's kind of in time. I'm learning about this, these things and relaying them to you at the same time. So you're going to see me looking at my phone. I'm going to be looking up information. And I found out some pretty interesting things about podcasting today. There's this whole thing with, like, I don't know, just podcasting in general and people getting in trouble for the information that they're giving out or what, whatever, what have you. And it turns out that we can't actually get sued or in trouble for relaying this information because that's all we're doing. This information's already out there. It's on the internet. It's out there. You know, the information exists. All we're doing is just telling you about it. So you can't get in trouble for that. Somebody, you know, all I'm thinking is that it's true, you know, because of, because of the evidence of it already being in existence, not by myself somebody else that to me can only say hey this is probably real you know that's the only thing that we can assume right so you can't get in trouble for that because they're automatically putting it on there which should make us assume that yeah this is real this happened this person did that these people did that whatever what have you point being is, is that we can't get in trouble for it guys that's a fucking great thing so if you're listening to this episode man you tuned into a good one because i don't think a lot of people know that you know that you actually pretty much have no limits man it's all fair use if it's on the internet man it is fair use to a certain degree you know you obviously can't just steal like the kellogg's logo or something and put it on your stuff and be like yes it is kellogg's i don't know who's doing that but you get my point is the information is on the internet and we're just relaying that information so how can we get in trouble for that because we assume it's true but i am also in the process of trying to put together live podcasting i don't know how well it works where you actually go live you know i'm not joe rogan so i can't you know, just going live on YouTube isn't going to, I'm not going to bring in a significant draw, but I will be putting out videos. Nonetheless, I'm going to be doing videos, uh, for the live podcast and try to, I'm going to try to do, increase it, make it better. I'm going to get you guys a screen going very much like Joe Rogan. So you can see, 
you know, who we're talking about, maybe some of the victims, some of the crime scenes. I'm going to really try and make it, you know, a deep dive for true crime because I don't see a lot of true crimers doing this. You know, they might be doing live versions like Small Town Murder, you know, where they have pictures in the theater or what have you. But this is going to be a live podcast for YouTube. You know, for all, you can find it everywhere. You know, we're on iTunes and everywhere else. But I'm going to be doing the live videos, the video portion of it, and putting it on uh, YouTube. So just give you guys another place to listen to it, and you can see me doing it. And you can see I got in the live video, you will see my setup. It's pretty decent. I like it. Uh, pretty open space, but I do have some soundproofing going on. And honestly, guys, I realize it doesn't matter. With this kind of equipment, it doesn't even matter. You know what I'm saying? This is great equipment. Problem is, is I'm still new at using it and editing the stuff that comes out of it so this microphone is turned up to almost a hundred you know it's picking up the volume on this mic is at a hundred and I still feel like I'm so quiet I still feel like I have to talk really close to the mic which that's fine I kinda prefer it anyways being close to the mic I don't wanna be right on it but you get my you know it, there's a comfort in it but uh, yeah I'm excited about it man I'm excited about doing this uh, whole thing and getting it back uh, running giving you guys more and more content and just trying to be as entertaining as possible and like I said I'm not seeing a lot of true crime podcasts going and putting their episodes, a live recording of their episodes on YouTube, showing pictures of things and whatnot. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to try to do that as often as I can. So let's get into that, man. Like I said, seven minutes in, you got to, you know, if you stuck with me, we're, uh, we're over seven minutes. <laughs> so let's get into it, man. The guy that we're actually going to be discussing today, his name is Richard Speck. Okay, so one of the things I really enjoy doing at the beginning of these episodes is I like to look at the crime rates of where they're from and kind of the era that they that they were actually committing crimes and see if there was a, you know, a huge crime boom or something like that, if there's more, you know, that the police should have been aware of things. Does that make sense? So I'm really going to look at, like, 1980 specifically because Richard Speck was born in Illinois. Uh, Illinois, I guess, I don't know, Illinois, and he's, uh, Kirkwood was the place he was born in 1941, so I'm just looking at the year of, like, 1980 to see what it was like, the crime rate in Illinois in itself, not just Kirkland, so in 1980, there was 11.355 million people, um, violent crime, 91,000, this is per 100,000, uh, 91,753, there were 620,000 property, uh, 1,205 murders. The next year, there was exactly the same, 1,205 murders. And then, just a year later, in 1982, it drops off by 200 exactly. That's pretty strange, right? So it goes from being 1,205 to 1,005, and then back up to 1,112. Uh, also in 1980, there was 3,950 rapes. That was the most for, like, I don't know, five years straight. And then it booms again in... 1985 up to 4,529 but yet that is one of the lowest murder years uh, between 19, uh, 1980 and 1989 there was only 927 murders in 1985 so that's pretty crazy right way more rapes way less murder but there's uh, 33,000 robberies uh, um, excuse me 41,000 robberies 44,000 aggravated assaults 177,000 burglary and 73,000 theft so it seems pretty pretty vast there as far as violent crimes there was you know being 91,000 in 1980 it dropped off by a thousand it continues to drop off all the way back until 1986 where it jumps back up to 92,000 violent crimes so that's pretty interesting you know was was 1980 a, a blossoming year of crime in Chicago maybe I believe so you know, there was the crack boom, and uh, amongst other things, you know, that definitely didn't help, and drugs, with drugs comes crime, right? I can only imagine, it only makes sense, and uh, as history has shown us, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, there is, in most cases, when it comes to crime, sometimes, you know, there's, there's some sort of drug involved, at least in this day and age, you know, it seems, even though there is a lot more just random murders that happen, uh, you know, there's definitely still people that are committing crimes specifically for drugs you know alright guys so now let's actually look into Richard Speck and his youth you know growing up what was his childhood like 
was there a crazy twist of fate? Was there was there something specific that pointed to uh, him becoming the person that he was and doing the things that he did? Uh, we're going to find out. Believe me, we are going to find out together right now. I just got to say right out of the gate, Richard Speck is a really fucked up name anyways, right? It's just a weird name. Like, if they were to call him Dick, you know, Dick Speck, that's not, that's not a good one. I mean, I hate my name, but come on. Dick Speck, that's weird. It's just weird. But uh, Richard Benjamin Speck was born in the small town of Kirkwood, Illinois. He was the seventh of eight children of uh, Benjamin Franklin Speck and Mary Margaret Carball Speck. Like, those are some old-timey-ass names. Benjamin Franklin and Mary Margaret. That's some old-timey names, guys. It really is. Like, that's the oldest name I probably could ever hear. Benjamin Franklin and Mary Margaret. Hello. Sounds like, it definitely sounds like your grandparents. I've never met a dude like my age whose name's Benjamin Franklin. Or even a girl. <laughs> Mary Margaret. Wasn't that Abraham Lincoln's wife's name? I don't know. I, I don't know. I really don't. I'm sorry. I wish I had learned more, I guess. <laughs> uh, the family actually moved to Monmouth, I guess. Monmouth? I don't know how you'd say it. Uh, Illinois, shortly after Speck's birth. Uh, Speck and his younger sister, Caroline, were much younger than their four older sisters and two older brothers. Speck's eldest brother, Robert, died at the age of 23 in an automobile accident in 1952. And you can imagine, like, 1952 cars were not what they are today, you know, not what they are today. Uh, same thing with being able to save lives, like medical abilities, hospitals, they weren't nearly up to par. Uh, Speck's father worked as a packer at Western Stoneware in Monmouth. Uh, he had previously worked as a farmer and lodger. Speck was very close to his father, who died in 1947 from a heart attack at the age of 53. Speck was only six years old at the time. That's, I don't know, is that the twist of fate? Losing the dad can always be uh, pretty messed up, especially if you're close. You know what I mean? If you're not close, your dad's not around. It doesn't matter as much. But if you are close to your father, it's going to be a rough thing, especially being a young boy who is way younger in comparison to the other boys. You know, you need that manly, you know, that manly learning, I guess, you know, from the father or father-like figure, right? Uh, a few years later, Speck's religious T. Tito Taylor, I guess. I don't know what that is. But uh, mother, she had uh, fell in love with a traveling insurance salesman from Texas. His name is Carl August Rudolph Lindbergh. Jesus. Like, how many... Were people just obsessed with having names back then? Hi. Uh, yes, this is my child. Um, what's the limit on names? Because I, I just want to make sure that, you know, 11 isn't too much. <laughs> uh, she actually met this uh, Carl August Rudolph Lindbergh on a train trip to Chicago. He was a hard-drinking, peg-legged, <laughs> peg-legged fella. You know, always a winner. This is the question here. So he's hard-drinking. He's got peg legs, right? At least one. But he's a traveling insurance salesman. Like, what's his, you know, what's his, uh, how does he, what's his pitch? You know, how does he pitch it to him? Like, listen, I know I might look horrible. You know, I don't have, I have a wooden leg, of some sort, or at least a missing leg, some sort of a prosthetic. Otherwise, how am I getting in and out of the car to sell this insurance? And, uh, you know, if it wasn't for this insurance, man, I wouldn't even have this pro prosthetic. So, you know, I wouldn't be able to drink either. And drinking is what makes me okay with not having my leg and selling insurance. So, is that is that good? You want some insurance then? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I just don't. I don't believe it. I don't know. I, how do you buy insurance from that guy? You're like, guy, uh, where's your leg, guy? You know? What What happened to your leg? He's like, diabetes. <laughs> you know, something stupid. <coughs> not to shit on anybody that has diabetes. That's not good. But point being is this: it just doesn't add up that you're going to buy insurance from a guy who doesn't look like insurance has really helped him out. <laughs> you know? Uh, Speck's mother actually married Lindbergh on May 10th, 1950, in Palo Pinto, Texas. Speck and his younger sister Caroline stayed in their uh, stayed with their married sister Sarah Thornton in uh, Monmouth for a few months, so that way Speck could finish second grade. 
before joining their mother, Ann Lindbergh, in rural Santo, Texas, 40 miles west of Fort Worth, where Speck attended third grade. So that in itself is already, you know, the fact of the father dying, the the crazy hard-drinking stepfather that's got to look like a monster, you know, <laughs> to a six-year-old, oh, where's his fucking leg? You know, he's a second grader, a third grader, whatever. And there's this man that's living in his house, you know, with his mom, taking over the father figure thing, and he doesn't have anybody telling him, explaining to him the situation. You know what I'm saying? So it's got to be pretty strange. Just moving around in itself has got to be weird, knowing that you have to move at the end of second grade to a whole new state is mind-boggling you know i moved a lot as a kid as well and that does take a toll on you you know especially when you make friends in the one location and then you find yourself moving somewhere else and never seeing those people again and not making the same type of friends you know it does kind of make you cultured but still it's not when you're that young it's not good uh after a year in santo speck and his mother and his stepfather and sister Carolyn moved to East Dallas uh, section of Dallas, Texas, obviously. It'd be weird if it was like, East Dallas, San Antonio. Oh, that's, oh. Um, yeah, they living at 10 addresses in poor neighborhoods over the next dozen years. So yeah, way too much moving around, way too much moving around, especially in places that are rural. You know, there's not a lot of other people. There's not even, you know, a school classroom couldn't consist of more than 15 to 20 students. You know, that's per grade. Uh, Speck loathed his often, he actually hated his often drunk and frequently absent stepfather who psychologically abused him with insults and threats. Now, like I said, that's a thing. You know, it's there. This is the twist of fate, guys. I'm telling you, losing his dad, who he was close to, having this other guy come in who was nothing like his father, ultimately terrible to both, you know, him and his other, his other siblings and probably the mother, you know, because he's drinking and... He doesn't have a leg, at least one leg. He's missing at least one. We know that. Uh, Speck was a poor student who actually needed glasses for reading, but refused to wear them. Now, this is back when, you know, the kids were called, like, four-eyed freaks and stuff like that, and brace face and metal mouth or whatever the fuck. Just these dumb, terrible jokes that kids say about somebody who needs glasses. And I love glasses, you know. I think they're great. They're, they're a great uh, cranial accessory. But, you know, back then, a kid with glasses was not highly favored amongst the other students. That's just, it's just how it was. It's a sad, sad truth. You know, but what can, what can you do? Uh, he struggled through Dallas public schools from 4th through 8th grade, uh, repeating the 8th grade at J.L. Long Junior High School, in part because he refused to speak in class because of a lifelong fear of people staring at him. Now, that's weird. You know, already, that's that's a strange thing in itself. You know, I know public speaking is not something that people enjoy. <laughs> people can't stand it. But the crippling fear is too much. You know, and it's not even just public speaking for Richard. It was people's, people staring at him, people just looking at him, acknowledging him, I guess, in a sense, right? But in the autumn of 1957, uh, Speck started in ninth grade at Crozier uh, Technical High School but failed every subject and did not return for the second semester in January 1958, dropping out just after his 16th birthday. So right there, it kind of goes back to the dad thing. You know, there is, there's something to it, man. People wouldn't, you know, I don't know. I think, like I said, the father thing, it's huge. You know, being having that dad there, having that male support is is huge, you know, and when you're that young to lose your father, the rest of your life is only going to be strange. Some people find their way out of it, you know. Some people find other ways, obviously, to, uh, you know, cope. But uh, Speck started drinking at the age of 12, which is not, by any standard, like, the best way to cope. When you're that young, it's crazy. Uh, by age 15, he was getting drunk almost every fucking day. That's, what? A 15-year-old getting drunk every day. Now, how, how, what kind of freedom do you have then? You know, your parents, your stepdad and, and stepmom, or, or mom, sorry, aren't paying attention at all? They're not paying attention whatsoever to notice that a 15-year-old is getting drunk every day? That doesn't make sense to me. Doesn't make sense. But apparently it happens. You know, you hear about it more often than not. Uh, his first arrest was actually in 1955 at the age of 13 for trespassing. Uh, his follow it was actually followed by dozens of other arrests for misdemeanors over the next eight years. So, you know, being drunk out there as a 
a child, I would say, a teenager at least, not doing well, man. Uh, getting in trouble for trespassing is probably the... It's... I don't know. It's like nothing. It's like a nothing arrest. Like, why were you here? You just couldn't leave the place that you were at because you were probably so wasted that you didn't know what was happening. But uh, Speck worked as a laborer for the 7-Up Bottling Company, so that, they gotta love that, having that in their uh, dossier, just to be like, oh, Richard Speck worked here, isn't that cool? No. Um, I worked there for almost three years, from 1960 to 63. In October of 61, Speck uh, met 15-year-old Shirley Annette Malone. See, another old-ass name, Shirley Annette. I've never even met uh, an Annette. Hi, my name's Annette. Would you like some... I don't know. What, what would they sell? Canned soup? I don't know. Annette. Shirley Annette Malone. But they met at a Texas State Fair. Uh, she became pregnant after three weeks of dating him. Interesting. Uh, Shirley married Speck on January 19, 1962, and initially moved in with him and his mother, Carolyn, and Carolyn's husband. So they're all living in, under the same roof. It's absurd. Uh, Speck's mother and stepfather had actually separated, thankfully. Uh, his stepfather had moved to California. Bye. What are you going to do there? What are you going to do? Are you going to sell sell you know, insurance door-to-door with your one leg, sir, in California? Is it, are, they, are they begging for you out there? Do they need your insurance out there, sir? Are you the guy to sell them the insurance? Are you that guy? I don't know. Maybe he's that good. They're like, listen, listen, Jerry. We know how good you sell insurance around here. We, you're fantastic. But we need you in California. So pack up your peg leg. Get your, get your insurance pamphlets and brochures. You're going to California, friend. I don't know, I just turned into Pacino there at the end. Weird. Um, Speck actually stopped using the name Richard Benjamin Lindbergh when he got married and began using the name Richard Benjamin Speck. Because uh, obviously he was adopted at some point by this fellow. When Speck's daughter, Robbie Lynn, was born on July 5, 1962, his wife did not know that Speck was serving a 22-day jail sentence for disturbing the peace in McKinney, Texas, after a drunken melee. So, like I said, another thing. Guys that have their dads probably don't partake in such events. It just, I don't know. That's my theory. Not saying that I haven't. My dad's garbage. Not around. But not because he died. You know, if that's in your head, you know, you had those good those good years with him, and then he passes away, that's more scarring than somebody who just disappears. You know, you don't even really know the guy. But uh, in July 1963, Speck was caught after he forged a, and cashed a co-worker's $44 paycheck. You know, lowball. Uh, he also robbed a grocery store, making away with cigarettes, beer, and $3 in cash. You know, what was it, an Amish store? What was happening? Uh, the 21-year-old Speck was convicted of forgery and burglary, and then he was sentenced to three years in prison. He was paroled after serving 16 months from 63 to 65 in uh, Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville, Texas. So, big boy, big boy trouble. Uh, one week after his parole, at 2.20 a.m. on January 9, 1965, Speck was wielding a 17-inch carving knife when he attacked a woman in a parking lot of her apartment building. Worst place. You know, going home. Going home and you get attacked. Not cool. Uh, he fled when the woman screamed, obviously, as most of them do. Uh, the police arrived within minutes and apprehended Speck a few blocks away. Speck was then convicted of aggravated assault, given a 16-month sentence to run concurrently with the parole violation sentence, and returned to prison in Huntsville. So, going home, right? Uh, but due to an error, he was released from prison just six months later on completion of his parole violation sentence in July 65. So they get him for all this stuff, right? They get him locked up for all this stuff. Then they parole him because of uh, miscommunication in the system. Like, some of these guys just get so lucky, right? So lucky. If that wouldn't happen, his sentence had to have been ridiculous. That's like four, di four different charges, and they have to run concurrently. Which I believe is where... You go through and you do a sentence, say it's 10 years, you finish your 10 years, but you have another charge of 10 years. So then you just come right back and do the other 10 years. That's all it is. You don't get to sit there for 20 years. Does that make sense? You do sit for 20 years, but it's concurrently. You know what I'm saying? So the time doesn't add up. You just It runs. You get a second charge. It's a new thing. It's ridiculous. I don't know. I believe that's how it works. Don't quote me.
not the guy, not the guy. Uh, after his release from prison, uh, Speck ended up working three months as a driver for the Patterson Meat Company, and he had six accidents with his truck before he was fired for failing to show up for work. So, no call, no show, he gets fired. But the six accidents, you know, don't worry about it, man, we get it. No, he was fucking wasted, I'm sure he was drunk as fuck, crashing the truck into mailboxes or what have you, who knows. Uh, in December of 1965, on the recommendation of his mother, Speck, who was by then separated from his wife, moved in with his 29-year-old divorced woman, with a 29-year-old divorced woman, an ex-professional wrestler who was a bartender at his favorite bar, Guinea's Lounge. He needed someone to babys- uh, This woman needed someone to babysit her three children. That's awful. In uh, January 1966, Speck's wife filed for divorce. That same month, Speck stabbed a man in a knife fight in Gu- at Guinea's Lounge. So, loves that place. Loves that place. Loves the people that come in, right? Uh, he was charged with aggravated assault, but a defense attorney hired by his mother was able to get the charge reduced to disturbing the peace, and Speck was fined $10 and jailed for three days after he failed to pay the fine. So, three days for 10 bucks. You know, I don't know how many, you know, charges you can get where the fine is merely $10. Uh, this was actually the last time Speck was in police custody in Dallas. So that's impressive in itself, I guess. You know, just not getting arrested anymore. Stay out of trouble. Not hard. Uh, on March 5th, 1966, Speck bought a, tw- uh, a 12-year-old car. You know, like some of us do. Uh, the following evening, he robbed a grocery store, stole 70 cartons of cigarettes. That's a lot. He sold them out of the trunk of his car in the grocery store's parking lot. And then abandoned the car. What an idiot. The same grocery store? Uh, the police traced the car to Speck and issued a warrant for his arrest for the burglary on March 8th. An arrest, uh, which is his 42nd in Dallas, would mean another prison term. 42 times arrested. Now that's crazy. How? 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 I don't know. I don't. I have no answer. But I have the question. How? How do you get arrested 42 times and not at some point be stuck in prison? You know. Uh, so March 1966, Speck's sister Carolyn drove him to the Dallas bus depot where he took the bus to Chicago, Illinois. Hey guys, just want to take a minute away from the show to tell you a little bit about my friends, Podcoin. That's P-O-D-C-O-I-N. I know you guys enjoy listening to podcasts, otherwise you would have never heard this ad. So if you would like to get paid to listen to podcasts, download the PodCoin app today. You will find every single podcast you can think of on PodCoin, and you can listen to it and get paid. And then you can take that money, donate it to charity, get an Amazon gift card. So many options, so many reasons to go download the PodCoin app right now. It is available on all iOS and Android devices. So get that PodCoin app today and get paid to listen. Use code SHAMUS for 300 PodCoin at sign up. And now, back to the show. Speck actually stayed at his sister's uh, Martha Thornton and her family in Chicago for a few days. And then he returned to his boyhood home of Monmouth, Illinois where he initially stayed with his uh, some old family friends. Speck's brother Howard was a carpenter in Monmouth and found a job for Speck sanding plasterboard for another Monmouth carpenter. Uh, Speck became angry when he learned his ex-wife had remarried two days after she was granted a divorce. Yeah, that's got to be frustrating. Uh, he then moved to Christie Hotel in downtown Monmouth on March 25th and spent most of his time in the downtown taverns, so still drinking like a fiend. Uh, at the end of March, uh, Speck was with some acquaintances where they were actually bar hopping uh, in the Gulfport, uh, Gulfport, Illinois. Uh, they were detained overnight by police there after Speck reportedly threatened a man in a tavern restroom with a knife. So, drunk Speck, you know, drunk guy even, drunk man, you know, uh, wielding a knife. That's not a, not a good thing, ever. Uh, on April 3rd, Miss Virgil Harris, her first name's Virgil? That's weird. A 65-year-old resident of Monmouth returned home at 1 a.m. to find a burglar in her house brandishing a knife. Uh, he was six foot tall, white man who was very polite and spoke very softly with a southern drawl. 
The man blindfolded her, tied her up, raped her, ransacked her house, and stole the $2.50 she had earned babysitting that evening. Could you imagine this day and age, somebody getting paid $2.50 to babysit? Oh, wow. Uh, Speck had frequented Frank's place, and the empty hog pen was one of the several places he had helped build in the preceding months, so Monmouth police brief briefly questioned him about Pierce's death when he showed up to collect his final carpentry paycheck on April 15th. Asked him to stay in town for further questioning, the police did. Uh, when the police finally showed up at Christie Hotel on April 19th to continue questioning Speck, they discovered he had left the hotel a few hours earlier carrying a suitcase and saying he was just going to the laundromat. He had instead left town. A search of his room turned up a radio, costume jewelry. Miss Virgil had reportedly had reported missing, missing excuse me, from her house, as well as items reported missing in two other local burglaries in the past month. On April 19, 1966, Speck returned to stay at his sister Martha's second-floor apartment, Avondale Avenue in Old Irving Park neighborhood on the northwest side of Chicago. She had lived there with her husband, Gene, and their two teenage daughters. That's just... It's not going to be good. They're going to regret that, I'm sure. We'll just... Once they figure out what he did... That whole situation is not going to be good. Just even though nothing probably happened, but just thinking about what he did and then him living—it's just going to be weird. Uh, Martha had actually worked as a registered nurse in the pediatrics before she married her husband Gene. Uh, he was a railroad switchman. You know, that's a a job we all aspire to. Uh, Speck told them an unbelievable story about having uh, to leave Monmouth after refusing to sell narcotics for a crime syndicate there. Gene, uh, who had served in the U.S. Navy, thought that the U.S. Merchant Marine might provide a suitable occupation for his employment. <clears throat> unemployed brother-in-law, excuse me. <clears throat> so on April 25th, he took Speck to the U.S. Coast Guard office to apply for a letter of authority to work as an apprentice seaman. Uh, the application required being fingerprinted and photo uh, photographed and having a physical examination by a doctor. Speck found work immediately after obtaining the letter of authority. He joined the 33-member 30, crew of Inland Steel's Clarence B. Randall as a class bulk or lake freighter. On April 30th, Speck's first voyage on the Clarence B. was brief since he was stricken with appendicitis on May 3rd and was evacuated by the U.S. Coast Guard helicopter to St. Joseph Hospital in Hancock, Michigan. So that's not too far from where I am. Uh... Yeah, he had to have an emergency uh, appendectomy. Not a good, not a fun surgery. Uh, after he was discharged from the hospital, Speck returned to stay with his sister Martha and her family in Chicago to recuperate. On May 20th, he rejoined the crew of the Clarence B. Randall, in which he served until June 14th when he got drunk and quarreled with one of the boat's officers. So you see what I'm saying? Like, him drinking and fighting, it's all, it all coincides, it goes together, you know what I mean? It's it's one and the same. So it's like the guy gets drunk and then he goes to fight. So, you know, better to stay off the liquor. Uh, Speck then traveled by train to Houghton, Michigan, staying in the Douglas house to visit Judy with a crazy last name. Uh, twenty. She was a 28-year-old nurse's aide going through a divorce. Uh, he had befriended her at the St. Joseph Hospital. On June 27th, after Judy gave him $80 to help him until he could find work, Speck left to stay with his sister Martha and the family in Chicago for the next two weeks. So he's just bouncing back and forth now. On June 30th, Speck's brother-in-law, Gene, drove him to the National Maritime, uh, Maritime Union. Excuse me. It was a hiring hall, uh, Jeffrey Maynard's neighborhood of South Deering, Chicago. It was to file paperwork for the Siemens card. Uh, the NMU, which is the National Maritime Union, is a hiring hall. It was one was uh, one block east of five attached two-story brick townhouses, three of which were occupied by South Chicago Community Hospital senior student nurses and Filipino Exchange registered nurses. Uh, eight of these nurses lived in the easternmost townhouse. Uh, it was 50, 150 feet from the NMU hiring hall. On Friday, July 8th, July 8, 1966, Speck's brother-in-law, Gene, drove him to the NMU hiring hall to pick up his Siemens card and register for the berth on the, a ship. Uh, Speck lost out that day to a seaman with more seniority for a berth on the SS Flying Spray. It was a ship bound for South Vietnam and returned to it. So, because he didn't get this job, he returned to his sister Martha's apartment for the weekend. Uh, by Monday, July 11th, Speck had outstayed his welcome with his sister, as you do when you're a uh, fucking drunk. Uh, Martha and and her family, after uh, 
packing his bags, again began driving by uh, his brother-in-law, began being driven by his brother-in-law to the NMU hiring hall to wait a berth on a ship. Speck stayed the night at Pauline's rooming house, which was a mile away in the Vets Park neighborhood of South Deering, Chicago. So staying relatively to the area of Chicago. On Tuesday, July 12th, Speck returned to the NMU hall hiring, uh, in the mid-afternoon. He received an assignment on Sinclair's oil tanker, the SS Sinclair Great Lakes. It was a 30-minute drive away from East Chicago, Indiana. When he arrived there, he found that his spot was already taken. He was driven back to the NMU hiring hall, which was then closed. Speck did not have enough money for a rooming house, so he dropped off his, his bags off six blocks east of the Manor Shell filing station on Torrance Avenue and slept in an unfurnished house just off of East uh, 103rd Street, 103, 103rd Street, excuse me. So he's just sleeping in a house where, you know, there's no furniture. I've always wondered what that's like, you know, to be able to do that, just to have enough balls, I guess, to just go into a house that might be for sale or something, nobody's there, and just sleeping. On July 13th, Speck picked up his bags and checked into the NMU hiring hall. He was angry for being sent to a non-existent assignment, and he talked for 30 minutes in the car with his sister Martha and her husband Gene. Uh, they had driven to visit him at 9 o'clock in the morning. They parked on East 100th Street next to Luella Elementary School across the street from the townhouses where the nurses lived. Uh, at 10.30 a.m., he was tired of waiting at the NMU Hall for the job. Uh, Speck had $25 that his sister had given him, and he left and walked a mile and a half east on 100th Street to check into a shipyard inn. Uh, Speck spent the rest of the day drinking in nearby taverns before he accosted Ella May Hooper at Knife Point. She was, 53 -year -old, she was a 53-year-old woman who had spent the day drinking at the tavern. Uh, Speck took her to his room in the shipyard inn, raped her, and stole her black $16 mail order 22 caliber uh, Rome, I, I would say, pistol. Uh, after dinner at the nearby Kay's Pilot House, Speck returned to drink at the Shipyard's Tavern until 10.20 p.m. Uh, he left dressed entirely in black, armed with a switchblade and LMA Hooper's handgun, and walked a mile and a half west on East 100th Street to the Nurse's Townhouse at 2319 East 100th Street. And this is where we're going to get into the actual crimes of Richard Speck. The other crimes, the the infamous crimes, right? Okay, so being this far in, we know several things already about Richard, right? We know that he had an issue with his father leaving, or not leaving, but uh, dying at the age of six. He had an issue with the stepfather that came in, who was not a father figure whatsoever. Uh, he's ran into a drinking problem. He was kind of alienated, or alienated himself while he was growing up. And all of these things kind of circle and uh, encompass the fact that he became a killer and started doing very, I don't know, spastic crimes. Because how does one go from attacking a woman in a tavern and then immediately go back to that same tavern to drink again? You know what I mean? Within, I don't know, the same amount of time, I think. I don't know, not the same amount of time, but at least it was way too soon. You know what I mean? Who goes back? I guess they say that, though, you know, tripping over myself here. But, you know, they say that a lot of officers will say that uh, the criminal were, will return to the scene of the crime. Maybe that was his thing. Maybe that's what uh, prompted him to do this. But either way, you know, not cool, man. Not cool. It just seems a little like you're just trying to get caught by doing that type of thing. By going and returning to the exact scene that you attacked a 53-year-old woman. It's absurd. But let's get into this here. Let's get into the, the crimes that really made him infamous, I guess you'd say. Made him the serial killer that he became. At uh, 11 p.m. on July 13, 1966, Spe uh, Speck, Richard Speck broke into the 23119 townhouse in Chicago's Jeffrey Manor neighborhood. The townhouse was functioning as a dormitory for student nurses. He was armed with only a knife, and he entered and then killed Gloria Davy, Patricia Matusik, Nina Jo Schmael, Pamela Wilking, Wilkening, Susan Ferris, Marianne Jordan, Marletta Gargulo, and Valentina Passione. 
Uh, Richard, who later claimed he was both drunk and high on drugs, may have originally planned to commit a routine burglary. Speck held the women in a room for hours, leading them out one by one, stabbing or strangling each to death, then finally raping and strangling his last victim, Gloria Davy. One woman, Corazon Amaral, escaped death because she crawled and hid under a bed while Speck was out of the room. Speck possibly lost count because he's not a bright guy, or he may have known eight women lived in the townhouse but did not realize the ninth woman was spending the night. Amaro stayed hidden until almost 6 a.m. Now, she was there this whole time that this was going on. I couldn't even imagine. And being a victim in this situation has got to be more, more horrendous than some of these other serial killers because it's kind of quick in that sense when they just attack you and kill you. This, this man held multiple women in the same place and took them off one by one and killed them. So being in that position and, and sitting next to those women and knowing that that was their fate and that was your fate, haunting, absolutely haunting. And it's trivial, you know, when you think about that whole situation, like what would you be, what would be going through your head? Are you just accepting death? You know that it's coming. He's done taking, you know, this other woman into the room and you know she's not, she didn't come back. So you know that that is the fate. It's fucked up. And then being a woman who happened to get away and wasn't able to do anything you know she could only stay hidden because she knew that her fate would be to be killed because she got away and he's already killing these other women it's crazy uh fingerprints actually found at the scene were matched to richard speck so he didn't do a good job of uh you know cleaning up but whatever uh two days after the murder speck was identified by a drifter named claude lunsford uh richard speck lunsford and another man had been drinking on the evening of july 15th on the fire escape of the star hotel uh, on 617 West Madison. On July 16th, Lunsford recognized a sketch of the murderer in the evening paper and phoned the police at 9.30 p.m. after finding Speck in his room at the Star Hotel. You know, you gotta... He was making sure the guy was there so they could come and get his ass. You know, that makes sense. The police, however, did not respond to the call, although their record showed the call had been made. That's fucking trippy. Uh, Speck then attempted suicide, and the Star Hotel desk clerk phoned in the emergency around midnight. Uh, Speck was taken to Cook County Hospital at 12.30 a.m. on July 17th. At the hospital, Speck was recognized by Dr. Leroy Smith, a 25-year-old surgical resident physician who had read about the Born to Raise Hell tattoo in the newspaper story. The police were called. Speck was arrested. Concerns over the recent Miranda case that had vacated the convictions of a number of, the cr uh, of criminals meant Speck was not even questioned for three weeks until his arrest. So he's on the lam, you know, virtually on the lam, but he's still living in the same place and walking the same streets and being seen by the same people, and yet nobody's really doing anything about this. He's just kind of out there, just there for three weeks, man, three weeks where he he could have killed himself, he could have taken off, you know, he could have done all kinds of shit, been gone, never came back, you know what I'm saying? And then there would have been no hearing, there would have been no trial, there would have been ultimately no justice for these victims, you know, these anonymous victims they had no ties to this person they didn't know him they've never seen him before it was a random face you know the worst type of face to see in your final moments uh speck later claimed he had no recollection of the murders but he had confessed to the crime uh to dr leroy smith at the cook county hospital uh smith did not testify because the confession was made while speck was sedated so once again on drugs and you know you can't use that in court but uh illinois supreme court justice john J. Stamos, uh, Cook County State Attorney when Speck was tried, uh, who knew of the hospital confession, stated, and I quote, We didn't need it. We had an eyewitness. Speck confessed to the murders for the first time in public when he spoke to Chicago, Chicago Tribune columnist Bob Green in 1978. Oh, sorry. The quote was, We didn't need it. We had an eyewitness. And then, you know, Speck ended up confessing to the murders for the first time in the Chicago, Chicago, why do I keep saying it weird? In the Chicago Tribune and uh, in the film Inmates Made at the Stateville uh, Correctional Center in 1988, Speck recounted the brutal murders in detail. He again stated he was high that night, but then he undercut the idea that the drugs were a mitigating factor, asserting he could just as well have done it sober. And that's a quote. That's fucking crazy, right? That's a, just an interesting thing for the simple fact that there's no remorse, you know, and that's how a lot of these guys are. 
it's an absurd thing and these videos and confession tapes and stuff are all available on YouTube you guys so don't hesitate if you're already watching this on YouTube get over there man check out these confessions it'll blow your mind like things got really really strange for Richard af even stranger after this stuff happened and he was actually locked away he became it was just strange uh, in December 1965 and 1966, Nature and The Lancet published findings by British uh, cyto cytogenicist Patricia Jacobs and colleagues of a chromosome survey of patients at Scotland's only security hospital for the development developmentally disabled. Nine of the patients ranging from 5'7 to 6'2 in height were found to have an extra Y chromosome, the so-called XYY syndrome. Uh, Jacobs' hypothesis that men with XYY syndrome are more prone to aggressive and violent behavior than males with the normal XY uh, karyotype uh, was later shown to be incorrect. In August 1966, Eric Angle, a swift endocrinologist and <laughs> from Vanderbilt University in Nashville, wrote to Speck's attorney, Cook County Public Defender Gerald W. Getty, who was reportedly planning an insanity defense. He's, of course, I mean, you know, that's the route that they mo most of them take. Uh, he suggested, based on Jacob's unsubstantiated theory and Speck's six foot one inches in height, that Speck might have the XYY syndrome. It's a chromosome analysis performed uh, the following month by Angle revealed that Speck had a normal XY karyotype. Uh, one month later, a court-appointed panel of six physicians rejected Getty's insanity argument and concluded that Speck was mentally competent to stand trial. In 1968, biochemist Mary Telfair and associates pub uh, published data from the genetic analysis and similar in design to Jacobs of subjects confined to psychiatric hospitals and penile, uh, penal, excuse me, <laughs> into penis institutions, no, uh, <laughs> into penal institutions in uh, Pennsylvania. Of the five XYY patients identified, four exhibited moderate to severe facial acne, leading the group to suggest that acne be added to the list of defining XYY characteristics. Uh, subsequent research failed to substantiate this observation as well. So there's this whole thing between the XYY thing being an, an, an issue for a spec being kind of messed up. Uh, in May 1968, Speck's chromosomes were karyotyped a second time by Angle with the same result. Um, after Speck's conviction and death sentence were upheld by the Illinois Supreme Court later that year, and the appeals process moved to the federal court systems, uh, articles continued to appear in the lay press reporting that Speck's supposed XYY genotype would be invoked as a mitigating factor. So they're they were still trying to use this throughout the whole thing, uh, you know, throughout his whole trial and all that stuff. Obviously, after the insanity plea doesn't work. Uh, June 28, 1971, U.S. Supreme Court upheld Speck's conviction but reversed his death sentence because more than 250 potential jurors were unconstitutionally excluded from his jury because of their conscientious conscientious <laughs> or religious beliefs against capital punishment. The case was remanded back to the Illinois Supreme Court for resentencing. On June 29, 1978 in Furman v. Georgia, the U.S. Supreme Court declared the death penalty unconstitutional. So the Illinois Supreme Court's only option was to order Speck resentenced to prison by the original Cook County Court. So on November 21, 1972, in Peoria, uh, in Peoria, Judge Richard Fitzgerald resentenced Speck from 400 to 1,200 years in prison. Really? Really? That's outlandish. Really? 1,200 years? It would be good if, you know, he was a wizard and you could keep him in there for that long. But even if he was a wizard, he, he could probably get out, right? Just transport, teleport, whatever they do. I've never met a wizard, so I don't know. Point being is, is he's not going to live to be 1,200, so it's it ridicu ridiculous. But it was eight consecutive sentences of 50 to 150 years. Uh, he was denied parole in seven minutes at his first parole hearing in September of uh, 1976, and at six subsequent hearings in 77, 78, 81, 84, 87, and 90. So he's he was trying to get out. What? what? Come on. You really? You, did you think you were going to come home? Did you think you were going to go back to your sister's house? Do you think she still lives there, sir? Uh, while he was incarcerated in Statesville Correctional Center in Crest Hill, Illinois, Speck was given the nickname Birdman uh, after the film Birdman of Alcatraz because he kept a pair of sparrows that had flown into a cell. Once again, weird. Uh, he was described as a loner who kept a stamp collection and enjoyed listening to music. His contacts with the warden included requests for new shirts, a radio, and other mundane items.
The warden merely described him as a big nothing doing time. Uh, Speck was not a model prisoner. He was often caught with drugs or distilled moonshine. Uh, punishment of such infractions never stopped him. And he says, uh, and I quote, most people have heard this, he says, uh, how am I going to get in trouble? I'm here for 1,200 years. Uh, Speck loathed reporters and granted only one press interview in 78 for the Chicago, Chicago Tribune. I keep saying it weird. I don't know why. Chicago. Chicago Tribune. Um, during that interview, he publicly confessed to the murders for the first time, said that he thought he would, uh, said he thought he would get out of prison between now and the year 2000, is what he said, and, uh, at which time he had hoped to run his own grocery store business. When, uh, Bob Green asked him if he compared himself to celebrity killers like John Dillinger, he replied, me? I'm not like Dillinger or anybody else. I'm freakish. Yeah, we all remember those fucked up quotes. Uh, Speck stated at the time that at the time of the killings he had no feelings, but things had changed. And he quotes to say, "I had no feelings at all that night. They said there was blood all over the place. I can't remember. It felt like nothing. I'm sorry as hell for those girls and for their families, and for me. If I had to do it all over again, it would be a simple house burglary." Speck's. Uh, and he quotes on to say, uh, final thought for the American people was, just tell them to keep their hatred for me. I know it keeps up their morale. And I don't know what I'd do without it. Creepy, right? Very creepy. Uh, the prison video that I had mentioned earlier, uh, Chicago television anchor Bill Curtis received videotapes from the Statesville Correctional Center in 1988 from an anonymous attorney. Uh, showing them publicly for the first time, Illinois State Legislature uh, Curtis pointed out the explicit scenes of drug use, sex, and money being passed around by prisoners who seemingly had no fear of being caught. In the center was Speck performing oral sex on another inmate, sharing a large quantity of cocaine with another inmate, and parading in silk panties, sporting female-like breasts, allegedly grown by using smuggled hormones. So this Richard Speck goes to prison and grows boobs. He was boasting, and I quote, If they only knew how much fun I was having, they'd turn me loose. The Illinois legislature packed the auditorium to view the two-hour video. Oh, sorry, that's not all him. Try again. <laughs> if they only knew how much fun I was having, they'd turn me loose. That's the end of the quote. And uh, it says the Illinois legislature packed the auditorium to view the two-hour video. Stopped the screening when the tape showed Speck performed oral sex on another man, as you would. Uh, from behind the camera, a prisoner asked Speck if he had killed the nurses. Speck responded, sure I did. Uh, when asked how, why, Speck shrugged and jokingly said, it just wasn't their night. Asked how he felt about himself in the years since, he said, and I quote, like I always felt, had no feelings. If you're asking me if I felt sorry, no. He also described in detail the experience of strangling someone. It's not like TV. It takes over three minutes, and you have to have a lot of strength. What a fucking garbage man. What a garbage person, you know? It's a, it's a damn good thing that they did catch him because there was three weeks, like that, like I had said. Three weeks, right? For Three weeks worth of time for him to move on, to take off, to run, or to kill himself like he had tried. And then he goes to prison and, and then he's just having a blasty blast? How's that fair? You know, people like to push away the death penalty and say that it's not valued or the capital punishment is inhumane or what have you. But when you see stuff like this... A guy who is supposedly, you know, because people have this general picture of how prison is and what's going to happen to these guys when they go to prison. And 90% of the time it doesn't happen because a lot of these guys are put in isolation or they become kind of celebrities, such as Speck, where they're, you know, they're paraded around and used, really. And these guys have such low self-esteem as it is when somebody gives them that kind of, you know, acknowledgement, they're going to... They're going to live in it. They're going to dwell in it. They're going to be excited by it and continue to thrive in that environment rather than learn from the things that they've done, rather than think about the things that they have done. You know, and that's the main thing for me is like you're supposed to it's supposed to be like a rehabilitation. You're supposed to come out better. Why get locked up if it's not going to do anything for you? Why get locked up if you're going to keep doing the same things anyways while you're there? You know, those things shouldn't be available, let alone be done. You know, there should have definitely... I mean, obviously, the jail systems have gotten way better. You know, prison systems have gotten way better over the decades. But point being is, back then, it still shouldn't even have been this bad. That man shouldn't have been around anyone. 
you know, put him somewhere else, lock him away somewhere else. He doesn't need to be around people at all. If that is satisfying enough for people, then yeah, that's typically what happens these days. You know, that Chris Watts or whatever the fuck his name is, that most recent killer, killed his family, took him to his job, got caught by the security camera next door. You know, his neighbor's security camera caught him putting his the victims in his in the back of his truck. Same thing. You know, it's a fucked up situation. And these guys, uh, you know, they really don't have any remorse. But uh, Speck ended up dying of a heart attack on December 5th, 1991. It was the eve of his 50th birthday. So, ha, you didn't even get to fucking make it. Sorry. Uh, Speck's sister feared that his grave would be uh, desecrated, as, you know, obviously it would. So he does not have a physical resting place. Speck was at, uh, Richard Speck was cremated, and his ashes were scattered in a secret location in the Joliet area of Illinois. So, pretty interesting to know that that's what they did with him. You know, that they would even ruin a place like Joliet by scattering his fucking ashes out there. But, whatever, be that as it may. Is that justice, though? He got to go and have all this fun in jail, in prison, up until he died. Up until he died, you know, virtually. When you had these other women who were just studying, you know, studying, uh, uh, a career path that was going to f- help people. It was, gonna, it was actually to benefit people, right? You know, they were all going to be nurses of some sort, and he took them away. And he got to go and do a bunch of cocaine and suck a bunch of dick while he was in jail, in prison, and grow some titties. Like, what a fucking weird situation, right? What a terrible, terrible guy. But it comes back to the twist of fate, man. You know, a lot of these monsters aren't born. You know, they're created, become a product of your environment. But, obviously, there had to be something that did not click correctly in his head for him to do these things, obviously. I mean, it just makes the most sense, because why? Why? I mean, people go through a lot of shit all the time. People go through even more severe things and don't come out the other end as a killer. You know, they don't kill, no matter how drunk or high they happen to be. But, yeah, here we are, you know, talking about somebody back in the 1970s, where I feel like it was really prominent. You know, killings were prominent. It was a thing. People were dying all the time, being killed uh, and murdered, you know. And now you have a situation where it's like it's a, it was a common grounds back then where they were trying to outclass each other, trying to kill more, just make better numbers and become more famous because they saw that you could live in infamy. And it's disgusting. But here we are talking about him anyways, once again. And like I said, this was interesting for me because, I don't know, I heard different things about Richard Speck where... You know, he didn't kill all the women or what have you. I thought it was like 14 women, something crazy. I didn't know that there was a survivor. That's pretty insane because I feel like that would be probably worse than being one of the victims. Because you have to live with that for the rest of your days. You have to think about that for the rest of your days. And I'm sure the one thing, I mean, everybody's been in a position where it's like, oh, I wish I would have done that and I didn't do that. No matter what it is, good, bad, whatever. You wish you could have done something that you didn't do and the results ultimately scar you forever and it's something you always think about because you didn't do what you thought you could have done you know this woman sat under there till 6 a.m how long was he there he killed all of the other women he actually raped the last one so how if she was there till 6 a.m she had to be there the entire time up until he left it's just bizarre man it's crazy but these people walk this earth and they constantly walk this earth and they are infamous minds 